You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. Always a pleasure to worship with you all. Um, If you've got your Bibles, you can open it up right to the book of Acts. Sorry about that. And we are back into our sermon series, The World Turned Upside Down. Uh, We had a short break last week. We're back at it today. We're in Acts 3. We'll go from verse 11 all the way through the end of the text. And um, quick pastoral confession for you all. Um, There are times in the preparation process, like a text like works you over. (laughs) You just... You dive into it as a pastor and a preacher, and you realize God is not only going to be speaking to you, but <laughs> there's something particular about what God has, has been speaking to me. And so I was talking to uh, John this morning. It's almost like I, I need to put like one of those huge mirrors right here. <laughs> so as I preach, you know, I'm seeing myself, and um, that's a good thing. That's God, the Holy Spirit at work. So that's the pastoral confession. Let's get into God's word, beginning in verse 11. Of Acts 3. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made him, had made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me for your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all have uh, friends like Peter, or you've met someone like Peter, the Peter we just read about who preached at Pentecost, and we read preaching here. Uh, he speaks what is on his mind, and he kind of just doesn't have a filter, it seems like. Uh, Peter's the guy on Twitter who's going to say what he wants to say, and he's not terribly concerned <laughs> with what you think. Don't at him, it doesn't matter. Peter is going to speak what's on his mind. He's the guy who's going to call like a spade a spade, if you've heard that idiom before. If something happens and it's obvious, he's, going, he's not going to dance around the issue for the sake of political correctness. For example, let's say Peter observes one person physically abusing another person. Peter is going to call it like it is, one person oppressing another person. Peter sees the injustice, and he isn't going to explain away the blatant injustice. Perhaps you think I'm misunderstanding Peter, and you might be right to a certain extent, right? Don't exactly know who Peter is, wasn't there when he was alive, but I don't think a first century Jew who was listening to his sermon would have thought that I am too far off the mark. What Peter preached would have been blatantly offensive to his hearers. You know, in certain cultural and religious conversations, you know, tack and decorum is important, right? Tone is important, I get that. I do not recommend walking around life with like a rock in your shoe, always trying to make a point. However, when it comes to understanding the gospel, which this passage is straight gospel, when it comes to understanding the gospel, Christians need to be crystal clear, just like Peter. The reality is, too many people are watering down the gospel to make it more palpable. We see, I think, in American Christianity, a non-offensive gospel, generally speaking. A gospel that requires nothing from you and will not hurt your feelings. It's a gospel that gives you all the blessings of God but doesn't take into account your sin. American Christianity has become like this a la carte line. Take what will not hurt your feelings, but leave behind the acknowledgement that you're a sinner. Leave behind the exclusive claim that is made by the gospel. Leave behind whatever versions of Jesus you don't like. You just kind of take, and we end up making Jesus into our own image. Truth is left behind, and ultimately, when we treat the gospel like an a la carte line, 
we leave behind the gospel itself. Peter's sermon pushes against that. And Peter's sermon is going to cause one of two reactions in you and in people in general. You're going to listen to Peter and be offended. Being like, no way. How, how dare you, Peter? Or are you going to hear Peter's sermon and be filled with hope? Hope. In Acts 3, we read how Peter calls a spade a spade. We see that Peter calls out an injustice and he doesn't mince words. He's very clear. While also calling out the injustice, he preaches about the path toward redemption and restoration. There's an injustice. Here it is, guys. But he doesn't leave them there. He's going to show them a path toward redemption and restoration. Now let's remember what happened right before Peter preaches. A man who had been unable to walk from birth was sitting at this at the entrance of the temple, and Peter and John walk by. The man and Peter like lock eyes weirdly, I, I would imagine. Be like, what are you looking at me for, Peter? Uh, filled with faith in the Holy Spirit, Peter tells the lame bigger, beggar to get up and walk. All of a sudden, the lame beggar is no longer lame. And everyone who witnessed the miracle and everyone who knew this man for over 40 years were astonished, amazed. They were put into awe. We read in Acts 3, verse 6, that Peter deflects the, the attention that he was getting from the miracle. He deflects the attention. He says, no, no, don't look at me. This was done in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Peter. Peter was simply a tool used in God's hand. That's Peter's acknowledgement. Nonetheless, the crowd wants to hear more, and Peter obliges. So verses 11 and 12, while he, he being the lame beggar in our story here, which I preached on two weeks ago, he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, or some of your translations might say Solomon's colonnade, basically a place in the temple where a bunch of people could gather together and a person could preach. Plenty of space. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Now, before looking at Peter's address, I want you to see this pattern which makes its way all throughout the book of Acts. It's going to help you in your Bible reading. A miracle takes place through the apostles, but the miracle happens so that the gospel would be preached. Demonstration leads to proclamation. It is well and good that physical healings took place, but the pattern of demonstration and proclamation suggests the priority is on the need for spiritual healing, right? Your great need is not first and foremost physical healing. Like right now, I have this terrible ache between here and my elbow. It's been happening for days, right? Don't know what it is, slept on it wrong, won't go away. It's like... But what's my greater need here that this get taken care of? Because I complain about this all the time. Just ask my wife. Well, how reflective am I in on the spiritual healing 
that needs to take place within my soul. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is for our soul to be redeemed and restored through faith in the gospel. Which is why Peter, seizing the opportunity afforded to him from the miracle of the lame beggar, preaches. Like, kind of an opportunist, and don't blame him. So a couple weeks ago, we saw Peter preach at Pentecost. He took everyone, remember? He took everyone where? To the Old Testament. He took them to the prophet Joel and then to the Psalms. Peter didn't see Jesus in the Old Testament in light of the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. Get this. Peter wasn't preaching because all of a sudden, Jesus died, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven. All of a sudden, it made things clear. No, no. Peter's Pentecost sermon shows us the Old Testament writers knew about Jesus. They were writing about God's redemptive plan that culminates in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 3, what we see here is Peter's going to up the ante. He's going to say that This Jesus from the Old Testament, we read about him in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Big names, goats of all time for Jews. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are our guys. These are the people we look to. These are the people we listen to. Glorified his servant, Jesus. Think about that. Think about what Peter is saying. These men glorified Jesus. This would have been an outstanding and offensive statement. For many, the statement would have would not have made sense. Why? Because they had always been taught that the Old Testament is primarily about Israel. About them. They thought it was about us. And Peter's like, no, it ain't about you. It's about the Savior of the world. But Pastor Sean, I've been told all my life that the Old Testament is about Israel, to which I say... Israel's inclusion in the Old Testament is important to the degree that Israel reveals God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. Just as Peter was a tool in the hands of God, Israel was a tool used by God's providential hand. Here's how Peter makes his point. When he calls out the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is saying the promises, guys, the promises I've given to these men have been fulfilled in Christ. Peter accents this point when he winds down his sermon in verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. If you were with us during our series on the book of Galatians, we went after that. This promised one from the offspring of Abraham is Jesus. 
The offspring of Abraham are blessed through faith in Jesus Christ. As if invoking the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wasn't enough, Peter says the greatest of all time, like now we're talking, we had the goat earlier, now we got, now we got this other guy named Moses. Moses? He spoke about Jesus too. The great Moses, the giver of the law, right? The giver of the law is said to speak about Jesus. Moses said, this is where Peter's quoting Moses, the Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul, now this is the offensive statement here, every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. In verse 18, it says the gospel of Jesus Christ was foretold by the mouth of the prophets, speaking generally. So once again, Peter argues that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Therefore, from Genesis to Malachi, you know, Malachi, then you flip the page over and you get to Matthew, New Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, we read about Jesus. Don't contend with me on that point. Contend with Peter and then Paul as well. What is interesting about Peter's argument is that even though he insists the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament has always been a part of God's redemptive plan, Peter doesn't let the Jews off the hook. Did you read that? They killed Jesus. He's quite direct. In verse 14, Peter says they denied Jesus. They delivered Jesus over to Pilate, even when Pilate says, hey, let's play, play a game of would you rather, right? Would you rather me release Jesus, or would you rather me release this murderer, Barabbas? The crowd chose Barabbas to be released back into their society. I see a tremendous, a tremendous irony that the crowd released a murderous sinner in exchange for a sinless savior who was going to be murdered. I would love to have been a, uh, a fly on the wall when Peter preached this particular sermon. He first tells the Jews they have not been reading their Bible correctly, and then he tells them that they killed Jesus, which the scriptures made clear was going to happen. But here's the honest truth. The Jews and the Romans are not the only ones culpable for the death of Jesus. You're culpable. Let that land in you. I'm culpable. We all yelled with the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Your sin my sin is what drove in the nails that went through the hands and feet of Jesus. Listen, I'm not going to water this down. If you want to water down gospel, there's a lot of churches out there. I want to make this real clear. Your sin, my sin, is an egregious offense against a holy God. Your rebellion is why Jesus walked up the hill with a cross on his back.
Again, like I said already, I promise you there's a mirror right here when I say those words. But here's the great reversal of the cross. Your sin, which drove in the nails, is why Jesus went to the cross in the first place. It is at the cross where Jesus atoned for the sin of his people. It is at the cross where your sins are forgiven. And I do want you to feel the weight of your sin because when you feel the weight of your sin, when you feel that, you understand God's grace and mercy. You have a better perspective of his unrelenting love for you. That's the problem with the folks who want to not talk about sin. Call it something else. My troubles, my issues, my, my hardships. And I'm not saying we can't use those words. I've used those words before. But we call sin what it is. Why? Because we want to bask in the grace and mercy of God. Peter didn't water down the gospel in front of a hostile crowd, and neither should we. If you don't feel the weight of your sin, let me try to show you what Peter says about the one spoken about in the Old Testament in Acts 3. Track with me here. Jesus, a servant, verses 13 and 26 died because of and for your sin. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And he served by taking the weight of your sin upon his shoulders. Jesus, the holy, verse 14, died because of and for your sin. Jesus was sinless, holy, and yet he was condemned to death. Jesus, the righteous one, verse 14, died because of and for your sin. Jesus, the only acceptable sacrifice, was always focused on the cross so that, Christian, you could be forgiven. Jesus, the author of life, verse 15, died because of and for your sin. We killed the one who created the world. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We kill the one who keeps every molecule in your body together. Jesus, our Lord, verse 20, died because of and for your sin. The only king worthy of honor and praise stepped off his throne so that he could save his elect people. Jesus, the Christ, died because of and for your sin. Verse 18 and 20. Christ, meaning Messiah, was the promised one to deliver and redeem God's elect people. Let me connect the thread in Peter's sermon one more time. The one spoken about in the Old Testament, the ultimate servant, the holy son of God, the perfectly righteous one, the one who created and sustains the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the promised Messiah, was mercilessly murdered because of the rebellion and sin of the Romans, the Jews, and you and me. If all this is true, There's a question that needs to be asked. What are we to do? What do we do? Fortunately, Peter doesn't leave us hanging. He calls his hearers into action. God calls us 
into action. Here are verses 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The call to action is to repent and turn back. In a sense, the call to repent is to turn, but repentance goes much deeper. The Greek word for repentance basically means to completely change your life, change your attitude, you change your outlook in life. It means to have a completely different outlook in how you understand your own sin. True repentance goes from enjoying sin to like hating sin. True repentance is a call to line your entire life up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Ray Ortland has said it so well here. Our repentance is imperfect, itself a reason for even deeper repentance. But still, repentance does take us back to a practical trust in God. It pulls his blessings down upon us and it replaces our chronic impulses towards self-salvation with the peace of full salvation in Christ alone. Now, repentance is necessary, but is not the basis in which you are forgiven. Our forgiveness is based upon the merits of Christ alone. Repentance is a sign that you have faith in the crucified and risen Christ. Repentance is a gift from God continually calling the church into increased holiness and increased sanctification. So you might think to yourself, I've already repented. I've already turned from sin and toward Christ. I have faith, so I'm all good, right? Easy, uh, easy believism Christianity might say you're all good. But the gospel makes a claim on your life to constantly repent of sin and so to trust in God. Faith in the gospel is an ongoing call to turn away from wickedness and to trust God. And if there's a reason why we're slow to repent and turn from wickedness, it's because we do not trust God, conversely, right? In the book of Revelation, Jesus warns several churches to change. He says two separate churches need to repent. To the church at Ephesus, or we could say to the church in the Des Moines metro. This could be spoken right now. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. In other words, the church at Ephesus started well, but they had clearly regressed. They lost focus of the gospel. Now the church in Sardis, Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Repentance, turning away from sin, is not a one-time deal. 
It's a lifestyle that leads to greater joy in God and greater trust in God. It's a Christ-centered lifestyle. Again, the call to the hell-bound sinner is to repent, and that's not a popular message to our culture. It's not. And the call to ongoing repentance to the church is also equally not popular. But hear this. God is always ready to meet you in repentance. Always ready to meet you. Even when you are reluctant to move toward God in repentance, God is always ready to meet you. Again, no one says it better than Ray Ortland. We come to God reluctantly, right? I mean, pause. He paused there in his quote. Do you find that to be true for yourself? Are there times where you come to God reluctantly? We return to God reluctantly. But who can help? but adore the divine humility that receives reluctant penitence with joyful enthusiasm. God is more ready to meet us than we are ready to meet him. I think about what that says about God. In light of the call to repent and turn, Peter lays out two paths one path leads toward destruction, and the second path leads toward redemption and restoration. Quoting Moses, Peter says, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Verse 23. If you do not repent, turn, and listen to Jesus, you will be destroyed. You end up receiving what you deserve. If this comes across as harsh, then good. Sin that is not atoned for leads to destruction. An unrepentant life is a rebellious life against a holy and just God. The second path that Peter preaches about is a path toward redemption and restoration. We read that repentance, which is a result of faith, offers forgiveness of sins, verse 19, Refreshing, verse 20, and blessings from God, verse 26. Peter's warning of destruction is coupled with this message of hope, grace, mercy, and love. His gospel call isn't meant to scare his listeners into like buying in fire insurance. If I just say this prayer, then I'm all good, I go to heaven and I won't go to hell. That's not what Peter's trying to do here. The end game for Peter is to show them the glories of their Savior, this is who God is. He wants to show them and us that our lives exist because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. American theologian from the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, says, Oh, this quote is so money. Just listen to this. It's so true. Oh, sinner. So, you and me, oh, sinner. You cannot give any sound reason why you have not dropped into the pit of hell since you rose from your bed this morning, except that the grace of God in his hand has held you up. 
That's so great. His grace. Your redemption happens because by God's grace, you are being held up by his hand. Your restoration happens because of your ongoing faith in Jesus and ongoing lifestyle of repentance. Let's look more closely at what it means to be redeemed and restored to God. In verse 19, the English Standard Version of the Bible says your sins, Christian, are blotted out. Other translations say your sins have been wiped away. One, co- one commentator says your sins have been obliterated. Obliterated! Here's the principle being communicated. There is an unparalleled power that comes from the blood of the cross. An unparalleled power. It is only because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus at the cross in which your past, present, and future sins are completely forgiven. You hearing the hope now? Past, present, future sins completely forgiven at the cross. Christian, what has happened is that Jesus has taken on all your sin, granted you forgiveness, and if that's not enough, Jesus also has given you his righteousness. So when the Father looks down, he doesn't see a wretched sinner. He sees a son and a daughter who are in Christ. This is called the great exchange. Jesus takes on all your junk and you become forgiven. And with sonship comes refreshing and blessing. Refreshing, verse 20, is the counterpart to forgiveness. Refreshing here could also mean respite or rest. Not only does God obliterate your sin, he also refreshes your soul. What does it look like to be refreshed? It means believing God is bigger than your anxiety. God is greater than your problems. God bends down wanting his children to come to him and to throw every weight you carry upon God. It's God wanting you to trust him for all that you need. If you've come here this morning, and I am in this category, if you've come here this morning in need of refreshing, hear these precious words from your Savior. May these words be like fresh water given to you after walking days in the desert. Hear what refreshing looks like. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Who better to speak to you when you're weary than your Savior? When God first breaks in on a person's soul and gives faith, there is instant refreshing. And God the Father does not stop 
wanting to refresh a redeemed soul. God the Father continues to refresh weary souls, but he also says to you, come to me. Come to me. One of the challenges of the Christian life, at least I've found, is that continually going back to God for refreshment um, it almost feels difficult or it becomes like, do it again? Yeah, yeah, you do it again, right? When a person is first saved, at least say you're saved at an older age, younger age, I guess it doesn't matter. When a person is first saved, there's a radical new awareness of the grandeur and majesty of God coupled with your own depravity, your own sinfulness, right? Oftentimes, when a person is saved, they're just like on fire for God. But if we're honest with ourselves, over time, a fire can become dim. The candle that was once so bright and obvious can become distant and blurry. And we have to remind ourselves that only God is our source of refreshment and renewal. Take all the vacations you want. Take a week safari in Uganda. That will not refresh your soul. It might be temporary. It might be enjoyable. But only God renews and refreshes. Nothing else compares to the refreshment God the Father offers through his Son. So if you've been a Christian for more than a couple years, you do know what I'm talking about. In this sense, God the Father wants us to always be like a child, right? Sons and daughters of the Father. If you skin your knee, go to your heavenly Father. Bad day at work, go to your heavenly Father. Overdraft the bank account. Seek your heavenly Father for help. Do you feel crippled by anxiety? Seek the comfort from your heavenly Father. Have you reached rock bottom in life? Your heavenly Father waits for you to come to him time and time again, and he will not turn his sons and daughters away. Go with him with your problems. Go to him when life seems disjointed. Go to him and you will find refreshment for your soul. He always wants us to come to him for refreshment and renewal. You can, in this sense, you can never outgrow spiritual childhood. When thinking about the forgiveness and refreshment that comes from the blood of Jesus, these lyrics from the song, Nothing But the Blood, ring true. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? The idea of refreshment and renewal. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In addition to forgiveness and refreshment, God bends to bless us. The blessing you receive from God is Christ. Hear that? The blessing, the ultimate blessing you receive from God is his son, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 25 and 26. And In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, talking to the Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the blessing of God has come through the offspring of Abraham. The the way to think about this 
is the way we kind of talk about our union with Christ. Ephesians 1 talks about blessings that a person has when they are united to Christ. Listen to all these blessings a Christian has from this one passage in Ephesians. Verse 3, in Christ you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, in Christ you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 4 again, in Christ you are holy and blameless. Verse 5, in Christ you have been predestined for adoption. Verse 7 in Ephesians 1, in Christ you have redemption through his blood. Verse 7 again, in Christ you have been forgiven of all your trespasses. Verse 9 of Ephesians 1, in Christ God makes known to you the mystery of his will. My goodness! In Christ, verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. My bad, I forgot another one. In Christ, verse 11, you've obtained an inheritance. Christian, what greater blessing do you need than what God has already given through his Son? I said to you at the beginning, this is straight gospel. That's what Peter's preaching. And that's what we need every single day. Straight gospel. Your Father God wants you to stop looking for blessings from the world and to bask in the blessings that come through faith in Jesus. Now, there's one more point I want to make from the text. In this life, we do labor, we work to live in a manner worthy of of the gospel, to live in a manner worthy of Christ. Life is hard, right? Life is hard. And so we need God to refresh us daily until the final restoration of all things. Here's verse 21. Just Peter, what a great biblical theology sermon. From Genesis to Revelation, heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the, from the beginning. Back into Genesis, what's being said? All things will eventually be restored through Christ. There will be a day when Jesus comes back to restore all things between the time Jesus first came to earth and when Jesus comes back. We do live in constant, constant repentance and a need for ongoing refreshing. But there will be a day when God finally makes all things right. All things there will be a day of permanent restoration. The gospel preached by Peter, they are ancient truths, but they are still new. He preached gospel truth extending back into eternity, which is still alive today and promises a future restoration of all things. So, Peter's sermon is offensive to anyone who rejects the Son of God. Peter's sermon is also a message of hope for the broken, for the needy, for the lowly, for the humble, and anyone looking to be refreshed by the living God. If you are in the latter category, then you are always welcome to be refreshed by the living God week in and week out at Redemption Hill Church. These doors are wide open. And 
part of the reason why we planted this church is because we want others to know about the refreshing that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.